Hebrews chapter 12. Um, Cody, I am so sorry, but I forgot to get the that lapel mic, so I don't know if I'm... Oh, okay, all right. I'm sorry about that. I even promised that I was going to use it tonight because I forgot to do the Bible class, but... Anywho, we'll just skip right over that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> I will just say, uh, all, all, all that being said, uh, we should definitely be encouraged by uh, the, the people that we have here. Many of the men here uh, work very hard. Um, things just go unseen. Things can tend to go unnoticed, even though you have all that hard work going on in the background. Not to embarrass anybody, but I mean, on Thanksgiving Day, you had Brother Danny. He was painting uh, some of those pillars in the driveway and making everything just look a little bit nicer, kind of doing the same with the sign. Cody was here a couple Sundays ago trying to fix some issues with the TV, and he was here literally all day. And so a lot of things that go unseen, um, there's, there's much more that could be said. Uh, and so I just say that one, so that way you can um, not only be encouraged, but just remember that that, that there are brethren here that are working alongside you for the betterment of this group. And don't forget that. Make sure that we don't take those things for granted and that way uh, we can continue to encourage one another to keep doing those kinds of things just to strengthen us and, and keep us going. Um, and we're actually going to kind of talk about that as we go throughout this lesson tonight. Looking at the text here of Hebrews chapter 12, the, there's a, a few different translations that actually, as you read the first few verses here, translate it as looking unto Jesus. New American Standard has it a, a different way, but I really like the way, uh, I believe it's the New King James that renders it that way, because that, that's really the focus that we're going to be looking at tonight. But that's the focus we should always have, is in everything we do, no matter what, we are always looking to Jesus. In every decision, for every emotion that we have, we, we funnel it through that focus. Um, and so I, I want to think in these kinds of terms, looking at focusing on Jesus even more uh, through the afflictions that we see in life, through the good times that we see, but specifically as you see in the context of Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to go through this chapter uh, tonight, just kind of verse by verse and just make application as we go. But beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are repro reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much, uh, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not yet not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, 
afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we'll stop there for just a moment. But just in looking at these first 11 verses here, uh, within this first point, I, I, I want to think about that notion of the discipline that the Lord gives to us, the Lord extends to us, um, and, and, and how, uh, especially as the Hebrew writer goes through this, it certainly does not feel fun or entertaining when we have to go through that kind of discipline, when we go through certain afflictions, and yet what it's supposed to produce, but something that is joyful, righteousness, holiness. Um, and, and so I just want to start at the very beginning of the chapter as we think about that thought, um, specifically looking at Jesus. Uh, the New American Standard, as I mentioned a moment ago, it uses the term fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I like that uh, translation uh, just as much because it, it's not just that we are looking unto Jesus, not constantly looking at him, but we are desperately focused on him. And we're not letting our attention be split, be divided. We're not letting it be distracted by anything. We are focused, fixed on that point, which is Jesus. Um, and, and, and I really just, I, I like the way that he says that in the New American Standard because I think it gets across very strongly the notion of, of that kind of dedicated uh, focus. But as you look back at these first few verses here, he's speaking of the affliction of the cross. And the cross is a, it, it's, it's a, it's a mess. It's an ugly, broken mess. You know, when you look at it just initially, it is bloody, it is messy. It is not something that, that you look at and think, oh, how adorable. No, it's serious. It's severe. And it's supposed to be that way. And God makes it that way because it's the punishment. It's the judgment that is supposed to be given to sinners. But instead of being given to the one that deserved it, it was given to, to his son. And so there's, there's a beauty and a terror uh, that we have to balance when it comes to viewing the cross. And I go through all that just to say, when looking at that affliction, when looking at that death at the cross, look at how it talks about Jesus's attitude in verse two. It, after he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. I think I've said this before, but that word despising, it means to consider a small thing. So, so you think about that for a moment. To consider the shame of the cross a small thing. This is not at all depreciating the, the severity of what you see at the cross. It's not at all downgrading the, the, the judgment that is seen at the cross. What it's doing is showing how much greater that joy that is set before Jesus truly was. He had been with the Father. He was with him in heaven, and he knew what that looked like. He knew what that felt like to have that kind of close relationship, to have that kind of close fellowship. That's what he left. That's what he came down uh, from. And so he knew what he was looking toward. He, he knew what was beyond the cross. Now, I think this makes the cross even more beautiful because even with that being the case, it's not as if Jesus is just completely unaffected by it. He looks at the shame and he looks at the pain, and, and this is something he prays in agony over. And yet he could endure it. He could go through that pain and that shame specifically because the joy set before him. And so why do we need to fix our eyes on Jesus? For a few different reasons. One, because he went through the same path and he did so in much more dire circumstances and did so perfectly. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so he's been tempted 
by all the same things, and he has been tempted in all the same ways. It's not like Jesus had a special kind of uh, a special kind of uh, deal with the devil, saying, "Well, you can tempt me." In these no, he received the full blunt of temptation, and and yet he was unmarred. He didn't fall. He didn't fail to those kinds of tests. Rather, he proved himself all the more every single time, and 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 proved himself to be that son of God. When we put ourselves, and when we try to think about putting ourselves in the same shoes as Jesus, I mean, we just fail almost automatically. Because on a daily basis, there are just small little things that happen that we freak out over. Jesus was tempted, surely, to lash out and just throw his emotions on the disciples time and time again. But he doesn't. Even though the stress would have been immense. It doesn't take much stress nowadays uh, for us to, to just flip out on somebody for anything. We can have a really good day. Everything can be going smoothly. And then one person cuts us off on the highway and it's a, the day is ruined and I will not be picked up. I will not be joyful for the rest of the day. And you know what? Everyone else is going to feel my anger. I mean, it, it, it's, it's so easy. And you don't even have to think uh, about that, but just in the comfort of your own home, you could be online and you could see something, you know, especially with social media. This is one reason maybe people just shouldn't have it. But people say things all the time and maybe directly towards you, and you just think, why did they have to do that? And then we come back with a very, uh, very snide remark, and we just want to give them the full force of the offense that we felt. It doesn't take much to, to push the right buttons, and we just let, let it all out. Jesus never did. And so... Even though he walked that same path, even though he, he went through those same temptations, he never failed. That's one of the reasons we have to fix our eyes on him so that we can do the same, so that we can strive to do the same and strive to, to react in the same way he did with, with that kind of calm, holy uh, reaction. Uh, well, not only that, but or not only are we supposed to uh, fix our eyes on him so that way we can... Um, that way we can try to make sure that we don't fall to those same temptations, see how to react to those same temptations. But also we need to uh, just keep that focus so that way we don't get distracted. Over in James chapter 4, uh, James chapter 4 in verse 7, uh, this skipped one of the passages I wanted to look at. But we'll just turn over to James chapter 4, get to 2 Corinthians in just a moment. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. <clears throat> James chapter 4 and verse 7. Speaking about how to resist the devil, how to submit to God. In verse 7 it says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How is it that you resist the devil? Will you submit more to God? How do you submit to God? Just like we read in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. You think wholly on him. You think of all those things that are, what he doesn't even just say all the things. He says, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, all, whatever it is, if it brings you closer to God, you think on that and you consider it and you don't stop considering it. Um, and as we said earlier this morning, it takes that kind of dedication and devotion to make sure um, that we actually attain the, that reward, the blessings that he says that we can get should we try to draw ourselves closer in that way. And so we need to fix our eyes on him so that we don't get distracted. But also, as you see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writing about some of the afflictions that they had gone through. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, 
Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so, I mean, you do you remember some of the things that he, some of the afflictions he says that they went through? Shipwrecks, beatings, floggings, uh, <laughs> hunger, <laughs> all kinds of, of uh, tribulations that honestly not many of us have ever gone through or will ever go through in this lifetime. And how does he speak of them? But much like what we see in Hebrews chapter 12 in the first three verses, but momentary light affliction. That's how the righteous man views these uh, earthly hindrances. Not to say that it's, that it's never going to cause deep struggle or deep stress within us. That can happen. That will happen. But when you look at the reward that is awaiting us, well, it becomes all the easier. That's, that is nothing compared to what we are going to receive. Um, and incidentally, that's, that's one of the things that we see in Jesus' example that the joy set before him, he was able to despise the shame of the cross. Well, so we want to make sure that we're fixing our eyes on him because we are walking the same path. Going further into Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 7, I like what the New English translation says here. It says, endure your suffering as, dis as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? And so as he talks about this, this discipline that God is giving to them, that God is granting them, if you want to uh, use the term, he's granting to them. But all of that, just to make the case that, listen, you, th this is something that you should not uh, despise yourself. This is not something that you should be upset about yourself. This is something that you're receiving because of your relationship with God. You are his sons. Um, and, and I kind of like how he goes beyond that in verse 8 and says, I mean, just think about what that would mean if you weren't receiving this. In verse 8 of chapter 12, he says, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19, John says, uh, Jesus says to John, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, again, when we look at discipline, when we think about discipline, it is never in like a, a positive light. It's almost never in a positive light. And I think that's why you see so little of it in, in our culture today. Not just, and I'm not just talking about discipline to the degree of, of how we discipline children. I mean just self-discipline. It it's something that I think is getting more and more foreign to, to much of our culture. And so, therefore, it's something that is looked at in, in kind of a... <laughs> in a pejorative way. And so I think sometimes we need to look back at what the scriptures have to say about things like that. Just because our culture looks at it a different way, that doesn't mean we need to look at it that way. We need to look at it the way God wants us to. And so if we aren't disciplined, it indicates a much worse problem. We are illegitimate children. We're not even children at all. And so we need to look at it in that way because when discipline does come, and it inevitably will, we don't want to react in the same way that everyone else does, those who are not in a relationship with God, and, and immediately throw our hands up and quit. As we're talking about endurance, as we're talking about persevering in our faith, we can't react like that. And so we need to endure as sons. Not only that, but we need to endure respecting the judgment of the Father. In verse 9, it says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So he makes that contrast of, of the, 
you know, our earthly fathers and how they disciplined us. And he even goes on to say, and they disciplined us the best that they could. I mean, they, they did what they thought they needed to do. We are being disciplined by a perfect father. You know, one of the struggles uh, with certain passages like this is because there are some people, Christians, who growing up, they didn't have a good father at all. They didn't have a faithful father. Uh, maybe he just wasn't in the home. Maybe he was just a very evil man. And so they look at a text like this and they, it, it doesn't register as well with them or it doesn't resonate. But when you look at what God has to say, when you look at the instruction through the scriptures, what you find is maybe you don't have that kind of, that kind of similarity uh, as you read through a passage like this. But what you're given is a promise that this God, this father, he's not going to mess up. He's not going to be absent, no matter what we may feel. And while that may be hard at times, uh, we need to press that notion in further and further because I do think it can feel like maybe uh, there, there is an absence there. We need to remind ourselves of these things. And again, that's why we need to focus more on Jesus with every step. But So, so why else do we need to respect the judgment of the Father? We, again, just to be more like Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 5, a lot of passages from Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. I, I, it, it amazes me every time I read a passage like that when it talks about Jesus learning obedience. You have, I, I, you have a couple stories of Jesus as a young boy. We don't have many, but we have, you know, especially that one when he's 12 years old and they find him in the temple, they find him in the house of his father. And and I just, you look at that and you think, you know, one of those random thoughts you have at times, would there ever be a more subject, respectful, obedient child than Jesus? Do you think that they ever had an issue with him? I mean, they, I mean, they were worried about him when they were trying to look for him, but even when they get to the temple, it's like, oh, can't really get him in trouble for that because he's about the business of his father. But can you imagine trying to discipline Jesus as a child, the son of God? It, 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 it amazes just to think, just to even ponder that notion. And so you look at a passage like this and it talks about Jesus learning something. And yet what we have is once more another instance where he goes through the same struggles. He goes through the same circumstances that we go through. And even through something like this, he proved himself time and time again. And so over and over again, you have that, that uh, emphasized the notion of Jesus went through all of these same things. We can do this um, as long as we're looking to him, as long as we're focused on him. And I would just add to that, as you look at verses 10 and 11, what you find is that uh, the Hebrew writer, I, I think, indicates that through all of this discipline, what is God trying to do? He's trying to train us in this discipline to share his characteristics. At the very end of verse 11, he talks about how afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Isn't that, the, isn't that the point? We are trying to be more righteous. We are trying to look more like God and reflect his holiness. And so with all of this, we need to remember what it produces, what it should produce, because I think that that helps us uh, endure all the more, just, uh, just like Jesus. And I would just add to that at, at the end of all of that, with all of that being said, none of this talk about of, of God's discipline, none of this is to suggest that God himself is, is, causes evil things like persecution. Uh, but I do think what it does teach 
is that God can accomplish something uh, for his victory and he can get the victory even in the worst of outcomes. Nowhere do you see uh, God being the orchestrator or the author of evil. Rather, you see him having a more impressive victory. And sometimes I do think with certain denominational folks, they tend to, whether they want to or not, they put this on God and they put these kinds of things on God saying, he is the one that causes this evil. I don't think God causes evil, but he can definitely use the whirlwind that came into Job's life for his good. And he can use something as horrifying as the cross of Christ. That was not a... a a good thing that was an evil thing that day the darkest day in human history and yet God uses that to accomplish our salvation and so just just keep that balance in our heads as, as we think about God's discipline well going further in the text in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 12 it says therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And you kind of might recall that story in... in, in uh, Genesis chapter 25, when Esau sells his birthright for, for food, for something so mundane and something so, so small. He sells a blessing that, that had been uh, instituted by God, and he gives it away. And he has to reap the consequences of that. And so you kind of have that context in your brain as you think about this. And I think that this is helpful when you think about what the, what the Hebrew writer is trying to get across. Um, so first of all, before we even get to that, in verses 12 through, four, through 13, I think it helps to look at Hebrews chapter 11 and think about that cloud of witnesses that we do have. All of those people that are mentioned who had beautiful faith, that had gone through incredible trials, incredible tribulations, and yet, even through those things, they're listed in Hebrews chapter 11. As, faith, as those whose faith we want to emulate, as those whose faith we want to, to strongly imitate uh, as much as possible. Now, the reason I think that that's helpful is because with, especially when you look at Abraham, why was he able to do all of the things that he did? Why was he able in Genesis chapter 22 to sacrifice his only son, the son that he had waited on, his, his beloved son? We kind of talked about this a few weeks ago, or a couple months ago, rather. He did that. He could do that because he had full confidence in God. He put his trust in God. That's a part of what faith looks like. It is a confidence that God means what he says, that when he promises something, there's no question. There's no doubt. And he knew, even if Isaac, even if the child was to be put to death, he even says, the child in me will return. That's the kind of faith Abraham had. And why? Because he truly trusted God. Without that kind of trust in God's discipline, we, we will become fatigued so quickly. We will, we will lose uh, that, that focus so easily. And so we have to be striving to build and, and train that kind of trust further and further as we uh, walk after the footsteps of Jesus. And just, again, remember 
when he talks about at the end of verse 13, that healing that we are supposed to receive, where is it that we can find healing? You're not gonna find it anywhere unless you focus on Jesus. We come back to the very beginning of what we were reading in, in chapter 12. Where is this healing? It's in Jesus. So don't forget him because there will be times when we get weary. There will be times when we get tired and we need to bring our thoughts back to Jesus. We should never think, well, I've been thinking about him already and it's still not. No, you just need to think about him more. And so we need to build that confidence and that trust further and further every single day. And, and I, again, it's coming back to Esau. I think we're given this example of one who did succumb to that kind of fatigue. He is one who very literally got weary and, and tired. And in that weariness, he made one of the greatest mistakes of his life, if not the greatest. Because of that weariness, because he gave himself to that, instead of staying strong, he lost the birthright. And you end in verse 17. He, he desperately wanted it back. He wanted so badly to undo the damage that he had done. But the blessing was not going to be taken away. And he was going to have to reap the consequences. And, and so I think we're given an example of this kind of, of this notion of we need to make sure that that endurance is not hindered uh, by just even though it may not seem like a temporary temporary uh, moment of great stress, it is just temporary. And so we need to be able to look past those moments, even though it always seems like it is the, it is the final straw. It tends to not be. Uh, and, and I think about that, you know, it kind of seems like a teenager when they talk, something happens maybe at school, something happens at work, and, and what do you hear sometimes? It's, it's, there's, there's no coming back from this. I, Someone took a terrible picture of me. I, I was bending over and, and my, you know, my love handles were showing and now my life is over. That was actually something I said to my dad. But, <laughs> but my, my life is over and there's no coming back. I can't even go back to school. You know what my dad said? Oh, you're going to have to. I mean, you're going to have to suck it up <laughs> and you're just going to have to go back. I, I wonder how God looks at us sometimes when we come to him, when we are praying to him and we say similar things, there's, I can't do anything else. I can't do anything more. I think we sound even more immature than Elijah. And I don't think Elijah was immature. Elijah had a deep, a real reason to be stressed out and think there's nothing else I can do. I just let me die here. There's no one else that's on your side. And what does God have to say? Well, no, no, there's actually several who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And there are several who are still on my side. And, and how does that story end? He does not coddle Elijah in his self-pity. He tells him, get to work. And I think the answer is often the same for us. We need to pick ourselves up and get back to work. His work, because it's only his work that's going to bring that healing, uh, focusing on Jesus again. And so we wanna make sure we don't, we don't succumb to that kind of fatigue, that weariness like Esau. Uh, and, but rather look to Jesus and follow in his example like Matthew chapter 4 when he is tempted in very, uh, uh, very severe circumstances of, of actual thirst, of actual starvation. And he says, I'm, I, I don't do anything without the will of my father. And so we need to look after that example more and more. Finally, uh, in verses 14 and 15, I would just say, Note the language there. Note that there is an expectation 
of that one another aspect, of, of helping one another not get to that point of bitterness, not get to that port of, a point of weariness, but rather coming back to Galatians chapter 6, we're to bear one another's burdens, and we are to, Hebrews chapter 10, stimulate one another to love and good works. I know I've been talking about this notion a lot um, recently as we talked about fellowship uh, especially of, of this aspect of one another and striving to help each other. The reason I do so often is because the New Testament writers seem to never let it go. Even in this chapter of Hebrews chapter 12 when you think it's talking about uh, more so the individual and it does seem to be focused more so on our individual race but in verse 14 he says pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That sounds like a collective responsibility. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. You need to look out for one another and you need to help each other in those moments of weakness. Well, we, we need to follow after Jesus' footsteps with endurance so that way we won't we won't succumb to that fatigue of Esau. But finally, I think uh, you, you see some beautiful blessings and rewards at the end of the chapter here. In verse 18, it says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched uh, into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command if even a beast touches the mountain it will be stone and so terrible was the sight that Moses said I am full of fear and trembling but you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and we'll finish that verse in just a moment I really like uh, this passage especially because I think it's some of the most convicting um, I think it's some of the most convicting verses of, of the entire thing because you think back to that imagery when they the whole congregation of Israel were at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapters 19 and 20 when he starts speaking the Ten Commandments and you recall their response you go up because we can't hear we will perish if we hear any more and that was a good that was that was a good response god even says that that was a an appropriate response from them and and so terrifying the sight as he goes through the imagery the language it's, it 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 is terrifying when you think about hearing god's voice from thick clouds and gloom and darkness it would be a terrifying thing it would be something that would bring you to your knees now i think he uses this as a contrast obviously because he says we haven't come to mount sinai we've come to mount zion and, and, and so what does he mean by that? At Mount Sinai, what you had was a moment where God was unapproachable. He was so terrifying that they knew they would perish in his glory. And only Moses and, and, and Joshua got, got even closer than the rest of the assembly, but Moses was the one that went and received the Ten Commandments. Only Moses was allowed to go and speak with the Lord, or really just receive what the Lord was speaking to him. And so at Sinai, you have this moment of God being unapproachable to a degree. But with Mount Zion, what you have is God welcoming all, all nations. And everyone gets to approach that city, that holy city. And, and, and it's not so terrifying a sight that, 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 the, that the individuals who are, who are being put into this kingdom are terrified to be in that holy presence. But people that are trying to make themselves holy to reflect that kind of holiness that they can be a part of that kingdom that they can that they can be closer to God like Moses 
And so I think that that's a beautiful contrast he makes, that, that now you have a greater reward and a greater blessing. He goes even further than that at the end of verse 24 as he talks about Jesus being the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You, again, you all remember the story of Abel in, Gen in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain kills his brother Abel and all because of, of anger, jealousy, Abel had given a good sacrifice, Cain had not. And I think that's the point. Every time you see the blood of Abel referenced, mentioned, every time it is in connection to a better sacrifice. And, and so you have that, the Jews especially would have that context every time they read about Abel's name. But when you come to Jesus, what is he saying? If that was a better sacrifice, what does that mean with this high priest? What does that mean with Jesus? His blood speaks even louder. And so yet again, just, just emphasizing the fact that we have greater blessings through Christ. And so the end of that path. It is being in that fellowship with Christ. Going beyond that, he says that we have come to a kingdom which cannot be shaken. In verse 25 to the end of the chapter, it says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those, who, uh, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reference, reverence, and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And so, once again, you have that greater blessing uh, uh, as he goes throughout what this kingdom looks like. It doesn't look like the rest of the physical nations of this world that can be toppled in a night. It doesn't look like these other kingdoms that have risen to great power, uh, power and, and, and great prominence just to fall and be forgotten. This kingdom, it stands forever. And so this kingdom that is approachable to those who are going to be faithful and are going to put themselves in subjection to the king, it's untouchable to the corruption and to the, the uh, encroachments of his opponents. I think that's a beautiful promise. I think it's a beautiful uh, realization that he's trying to get across. That just understand this kingdom that you have put yourself in, your, your bodies may be put to shame. Your bodies may endure physical harm. But just understand that the kingdom that God, is, that God has established is not of this world, but it is a heavenly kingdom. And a heavenly kingdom that we'll be able to have a deeper relationship with him when we pass from this life and move on into eternity. And so the Jews, when they lose the temple in 70 AD again, and, and it is just completely destroyed and there is no going back. They have something to worry about. But Christians, the one who has followed Christ, they have nothing to worry about. And why is that? Because they have a greater temple. The temple that all of the other temples of the past were always pointing to. And so that we don't have to be worried. They didn't have to be worried in the first century because they had a kingdom that could not be shaken. Now, all that just to say, in verse 29, I do love the fact that he ends, I say with a word of encouragement, but it is a word of, of, of uh, God's judgment. In verse 29, he says, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, you wouldn't look at that and think that's, that's encouraging. 
But in terms of trying to endure and trying to make sure that we persevere in this, in, in this walk of trying to follow after the path of Jesus, I do think it's encouraging. There's a lot of times that my father has encouraged me and not just by positive remarks, but by a promise of wrath that was to come if I didn't obey. And I think that that is, is uh, kind of what we have every now and then from, from time to time throughout the Old Testament and especially the New Testament. Not only do you have words of grace and words of mercy given by God, but you also have that, that reminder, remember, remember the judgment that comes on those who, who go against me. And I think that uh, both the, the gr more gracious words and the words of judgment are encouraging to that degree, that they remind us to, to, to you know, get on the right path, not keep going astray, and make sure that we start walking directly after the footsteps of Christ. Well, with that being said, you may be a Christian and you may need help. You, you may be in need of assistance. You may think that... Uh, you, you have been walking astray and you haven't been walking in the right path, realize you don't have fellowship with God. You don't have to stay there. You can use the brethren around you tonight. You can use the brothers and sisters here that would love nothing more than to help you in that, assist you in that, to get closer with God and ultimately get closer with one another that we can hold each other's hands uh, as we get closer and closer to heaven. Let the brethren help you. If you are not a Christian though, just understand that that word of encouragement, it stays forever. And one day, the judgment will come. Whether Jesus comes in, uh, and, and takes uh, and brings the final judgment uh, in our lives or whether we just don't live another day after tonight, one day we will have to stand before God and give an account for all the things that we have done and all the things that we have not done. Have you not given yourself to him? Have you not repented? confess that he is the son of God and been baptized for the, uh, into, into his death, into uh, his burial, death, and resurrection, that you can rise in newness of his life. If we can assist you in that, if we can help you in uh, obtaining that relationship with God, let us help you as we stand.